This is an audio recording of the Lendit Fintech Weekly News Show. The show is streamed live on Lendit TV, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. In this fast-paced show, the Lendit News team and a special guest discuss the most important fintech news stories of the past week. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Lendit Fintech Weekly News Show. My name is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of Lendit Fintech, and joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Todd Anderson. How are you doing, Todd? I'm well, Peter. How are you? Doing great. And coming from upstairs, from where I'm sitting, is uh, our, our wonderful CEO, Bo Bruskern. How are you doing, Bo? I am finally rested up after a crazy week at ETH Denver. Yes, we are going to talk about ETH Denver and uh, in a little bit. But first, I want to start off this week talking about an op-ed in Bloomberg. Um, and this was by the former head of the FDIC Innovation Office. And I, it was such... It, I mean, to me, I felt like um, Sultan Sultan Meji is the is the guy who was the, who who got the job. He this was a like a two year search by the FDIC trying to find uh, an innovation head. I remember talking um, with some of the people at the FDIC; they were delighted that Sultan came on board, so excited about it. And he's quit after barely a year, and he basically wrote, I think, what do you call it, Bo? A rage, a rage. Uh, it's a public rage quit. Public rage quit. That's what it was. But he also, but what I appreciated about it, it wasn't just a bitching session in this in this op-ed about what's bad. He also put in what he thinks is needed at the FTC. And basically, some of the things are just crazy. Saying like the people didn't want to. Um, pe- people inside the FTC didn't want to get rid of fax machines or snail mail. Um, they didn't things that really are just basic, basic. Um, Innovations, that, Peter. Innovations. <laughs> like Innovation. email. Yes. But yeah, the, the, and just the fact that they couldn't retain staff. I mean, there's so many things. It just, to me, it points to a real massive problem we have as an industry in this country. If the regulators are resisting innovation, I mean, what chance do we have to really lead the world in the, in, in the future of financial innovation? It's, it's, it's an uphill battle. A really subtle piece a bit in that. And there's there's some things that just screamed for attention. And, and the whole article was great in part because it was short and very crisp. There's one little bit where um, Sultan said, you know, we we tried to mimic some of the some of the innovations that we're seeing in other countries like the UK. Um, and yet it would have been nice to actually have conversed with them or to collaborate with them in a much more um you know, collaborative way. And, um, and I know on the other side of the pond, because we've talked to them, right? right. These, the innovators in the, U, the, sorry, the regulators in the UK are eager to engage with other governments. Yep. And apparently we're just not reciprocating. And it makes me really deeply concerned. Um, if, if some portion of what he's claiming is true, which I believe is a large portion, um, you know, that, that's real trouble for us. It was um, probably the least surprising thing I've read um, in the, um, you know the last few months, given uh, how little faith I have in in uh, the regulatory and, and legislative bodies 
Uh, but there was a, a few things I thought that were they're interesting. Um, Bo, you pointed out one, which is just the level of arrogance by the the regulators inside the U.S. Um, you know, regulatory bodies that think that they don't need to uh, constantly converse or or proactively converse with regulators around the world. Um, two, that the regulatory framework that is needed for a new wave of innovation in financial services um, that they think they can just apply banking laws from the thirties to them. Uh, and three, when listening, you know, I recently listened to an episode of bankless um, with Congressman, I believe it's Emmert in Minnesota who said, um, you know, the first thing that needs to be done is to rewrite those banking laws. Right. Because, no matter what the SEC, the FDIC, the OCC, the CFPB do, the oversight goes to the legislative body, the House Financial Services Committee, the Senate Banking Committee, until new laws are written. There's only so much the SEC, FDIC, CFPB that, that they all can do because they're applying laws that were written in the 30s to everything that's happening today. So yes, they can write, you know, executive action and they can do uh, all these different uh, rules and, and rulemaking uh, FinTech sandboxes. <clears throat> but in reality, there, there is a cap and a limit to what they can do because of the oversight uh, from Congress. And so it's, uh, you know, it's something I've, you know, sometimes when I talk about crypto, it gets me nervous in that, this is the bigger impediment to crypto than anything else. If the regulatory agencies and the legislative body don't figure out a way to rewrite some of this, then crypto has a ceiling. And that ceiling is self-imposed just by old laws that we don't or we probably want to be too lazy to, to fix. Yeah. Well, crypto has a ceiling in this country. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, and I think that's where. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty pessimistic, really. I feel like, um, you know, where, given this, given this article, even before this article, I feel like the U.S. doesn't. The U.S. is sort of the the big, you know, it's 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 the sort of the lazy incumbent in in uh, that that just keeps getting that you know we see it again and again and again. It's the blockbuster of financial services, and uh, Netflix and many others are chomping at our heels and. And uh, we're not, we're not, we're not reacting. The only thing more infuriating than incompetence is unconscious incompetence. Right. And that's, I think, what we have here. And, uh, you know, the trouble is, and this will, we'll move on after this one, my last statement is that the trouble with regulators like this is they run a monopoly that is unchallenged, unchallengeable. I mean, these are people who are not elected. You get uh, they get the head of the agency um, that, that has to be appointed, but the, the, the rank and file, they're not elected people. They, and it sounds like they don't get fired. if the laws are rewritten, they have to adhere to those yeah, laws. Sure. And so that's the way you do it is you ask Fair your point. senators, your congressmen, you elect new people in office because once those are rewritten – it takes away the inertia and it says, crap, we need to now change the way we operate because we were just told by those that over have our oversight, you need to change. And so yeah. that's the, the bigger lesson. But yeah, I mean, some of the stuff he said is, is a scary thing for the, the century that we're currently in. And 
I always say crypto moves like a dog year, seven years in one. Right. right. By the time this is fixed, we, we could be in, in old age. <laughs> right. Okay, let's move on. Um, want to talk about uh, an acquisition uh, that announced this week. SoFi um, is acquiring the um, banking infrastructure firm Tech- Technesis. Is that, that's how you say it, right, Todd? It's Technesis? Uh, yes, yeah. I believe so. Yes, yeah, so uh, the, 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 we know Technesis from our Latin American event. They've 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 come um, uh, and spoken at our event, and um, they're yeah they're they're actually based in Miami, but they they've, they have been focused on the Latin American market. I didn't even know they were in, the, the, they had much presence in the American market, but SoFi is now going to use Technesis to um, you know, replace their current because SoFi have just bought a bank that's closed and done. Um, and uh, and now they're going to replace the core banking system with Technesis technology and uh, also sell it on. $1.1 billion acquisition from, from SoFi. What I find most interesting is this is the second acquisition they've done in the digital banking sphere, which was yep. Galileo uh, and Technesis, is that now SoFi gets insight into their competitors. Who's <sighs> using Technesis? Who's using Galileo? Because now they're owned by SoFi. And so they can be like, all right, pricing model for them was this, or um, you know, this this company, this bank uses this. Now we know what technology they're running on. We can adjust and, and change the way we operate. So I find it fascinating from that angle. Not only one that obviously they'll probably eventually implement some some cool innovations and stuff, but the insight they potentially get into other fintechs and banks. It's pretty fascinating, and if I was a you know a potential competitor of SoFi or, or a, a bank that uses, it's a somewhat scary proposition. Like, how much insight does Chase have into Bank of America's technology vendors? And I mean, maybe maybe surface level, a- but not the not the level of detail that SoFi now has. And and think about how hard it is to rip out a core banking system. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, owning the core bank or core banking system as a bank, that's interesting, right? Some real innovation and development can go on there. So clearly they saw a developer pool, a core that was worthy, and uh, and probably a LATAM opportunity as as we're all three bullish on on LATAM, Latin America generally. Um, you know, it's a it's it's an interesting investment. Yes, indeed. Okay, so let's move on to overdrafts, our favorite topic here. We keep we keep highlighting the moves that have been happening in the last really the last like couple of months. City, third largest bank in this country by assets, has now said they are going to eliminate all overdraft fees um, by the summer. And this is the largest bank so far to say they're eliminating all other banks have have made some moves and Bank of America have reduced their fees and Chaser Chaser are, are reducing the amount, but they're not completely eliminating. City complete elimination of overdraft fees, um, other fees as well are going. Um, interesting point though, they only overdraft at least this fee revenue only makes up one percent of city's overall income it's much higher at wells fargo and chase and bank of america but uh still the 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 march goes on that's a good pr strategy (laughs) i think the bigger question i have though is so do you if you use your card and you swipe it is it declined i think that will be the case yes yeah see that that but that brings up a different issue 
because do you really want to be declining transactions that can overdraft you $5? Like I, I think the model that TD and Chase have come up with, which is you have a $50 gap. You go over $49, your, your transaction goes through. There's no fee. Yeah. You, you know, the, the money, you know, you put the money back in the account or PNC, which is a grace period. Uh, the declining of the transactions, I think, is is the while, you know, eliminating overdraft fees is good. I don't think the declining the transactions is the option that consumers really want. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's kind of this, you know, kind of weird spot, which is, yeah, we got rid of overdraft fees, but you'll just get a, a ton more declines. Well, I think you know what you the, the situation what you described there the fifty dollars a hundred dollars. This is this is just the first move. Um, I think we're going to settle on an industry standard. I think of you know fifty to a hundred dollars of free overdraft. You know, you might have to pay like a little bit of uh, you know a little bit of interest or a little bit of a monthly fee to have that privilege. But you know people don't want to have their you 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 you're buy, you're going into Starbucks and you're buying a $3 cup of coffee you don't want to have that declined when you've got $2.95 in your account yeah i mean that's quite the embarrassment you know it's <laughs> and, and it's just you know this goes back to part of the reason why i hate people people hate talking about money it's like this anxiety of all right i i just swiped and the person behind me is like all right this person obviously can't afford this stuff and it could be $1 that's the difference uh, and so it's, you know, that, that, you know, the, the cascading effects it has on, on the mentality of people is, is, can be pretty damaging. Yep. Okay. Let's move on. Let's talk about Warren Buffett. This was a really interesting piece, um, news this week. You know, he, we knew that he'd invested in new bank. He was, um, did, I think in their series G, um, that what they did before they went public. But what we didn't know is that he's doubled down. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing that they interesting timing, he's sold Visa, he's sold MasterCard, and he's added a billion dollars of new bank stock. So that's, um, yeah, he's trimmed, he's really bullish. trimmed his position Sorry? In, in Visa, MasterCard. He what trimmed his position, trimmed. so it's it 13% yes. of his position that he sold. Uh, so, so the, the numbers are interesting in that, in that you know, it's sold a whole bunch of MasterCard and Visa, uh, you know. 3.1 billion and bought a billion of new bank. Um, but, but, it, but, um, Berkshire's position was just trimmed. It wasn't right. Okay. Thank you for the correction. Yes. Yeah. New banks where it's at. Yep. And new it's interesting that, where it's yeah, at. Buffett is like a value investor and, uh, he must see value in a, what is potentially a pretty highly valued stock. He obviously believes in them, which is great. Speaking of highly valued um, companies, we have <laughs> Chime that um, has basically said they're uh, postponing their IPO. They were, they were due to go out next month. Not a good time to go out right now with uh, fintech stocks being hammered since the start of the year. Um, they say, of course, the decision has nothing to do with the market conditions. But they're really <laughs> focusing on launching new products. Who knows? Um, it doesn't really matter. They uh, they will they will go public. I'm sure this year is, is it's pretty highly likely they've got the scale. They're just going to bide their time, is my view. Yeah, we'll just see that the window's closed for a moment. Well, yeah, I mean it's a it's a natural uh, course correction um, that is probably needed in fintech. Um, 
And especially with all the companies that had gone public the last 18 months via, you know, most of them via SPAC. Um, there's been some other different types of listings in there, but um, clearly valuations have taken a hit uh, and better the, you know, the, the private valuations aren't as, um, you know, haven't been hit as much as, as far as we can tell with, you know, fundraisings and, and all the publicly available data out there that, I don't think I don't see how this really hurts them in any way. No, no, I don't think. And, and yet, some of the some of the public market valuations, I mean, they're down 70, 80 percent from when they um, closed the SPAC transaction. It's just quite uh, quite remarkable. You kind of knew it was coming, though. It's like, yeah. uh, all right, the SPAC craze went on. Then you're like, all right, how many of these companies should really be public? Uh, and now we found we've you know are finding out uh, that. You know, there's a bunch that shouldn't have. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think that's also a natural correction to to what was a, a very popular transaction for a six to eight month period. Yep. Okay. So I want to move on and I'm going to hand the microphone over to Bo because I want to hear about ETH Denver that was sort of last weekend, last week. Um, big, uh, big crypto event here in Denver, Colorado, which is where Bo and I both live. And um, Bo, we spent a bit of quite a bit of time at East Denver. What give us some of the highlights? Yeah, so um, East Denver is the annual developers conference for the Ethereum protocol, and um, it's been the first year back in person for two years. Um, so it's been a long time in coming, and it was a great reunion plus 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 for so many more people that have onboarded in the last couple of years. It attracted 15,000 people to Denver. Um, all tickets were free, but you had to apply to get a, a ticket. Um, the downside on that is that some people stood outside for two hours in the cold because um, some of those days in Denver were 60 degrees. Some of them were 10 degrees. <laughs> and um, and so it was, uh, it was really a phenomenal showing for the crypto community generally. Um, uh, a great deal of development was was going on. Again, it's a developers conference. Some of the themes were, um, you know, pretty wonky. Uh, you know, which you know, will there be competitive layer one technologies like Near and Harmony? Will they develop well, um, or are we going to see Polygon, uh, you know, really taking uh, uh, as a layer two, sort of taking primacy in this um, continually evolving um, landscape? Um, other questions or other themes were sort of decentralized startups versus centralized startups. You have centralized wallets like MetaMask that are now being challenged by decentralized startups like Tally. Um, how does that play out? And then speaking of decentralization, you know, the advent of DAOs, which have been around for a couple of years, but really came on strong in the past, call it nine months. Um, and how are they going to, uh, change the future of work. Um, the, uh, there's a lot more that was going on this week. Um, I would say that it was, uh, very high energy, very spirited and very, um, crypto in the best sense of the word. Like it was, it was, um, it was a lot of collaborative chaos and a very friendly, welcoming community and not at all sort of the, the NFT hype craze that you might also associate with, with crypto. Well, there was very little of that. So um, it was awesome. It's awesome to be a part of it. And uh, 
and I learned a huge amount. And uh, you'll see some of those learnings coming in our future programming at Lendit. And, you know, I, I, I did manage to, I had, I had a breakfast with Ram Alawalia from Pure IQ or now Cross River Bank, sorry. And uh, he, um, you know, what he said that was interesting to me, and I think you, you reflected this as well, Bo, is that there wasn't, you know, there's been a bit of an anti-bank segment, a, a sentiment in the crypto space. I mean, you, you have the, the bankless guys, which, uh, you know, by their very name, kind of uh, anti-bank. Um, but you, what what he said is that, that there is a lot more um, openness towards working with banks than there might've been in the past. Yeah, actually that's a really good point. I did go table to table down the expo hall and I asked a simple question of many of these um, exhibitors. And I said, look, to what degree would you like to um, build a, a bridge to um, the, the TradFi traditional finance or the FinTech segments? And there were exceptions, but, I'd say 80 plus percent of the people I spoke to gave a very, um, uh, ex, uh, you know, um, enthusiastic. Yes, we are. We would love to have that discussion. All right. Interesting. What okay. about the, the, sorry, I, I just want to ask Bo one question, which was, you know, the concept of decentralized, which is, you know, very much a core tenet of uh, a lot of crypto enthusiasts and the centralized banking system and how those two things play uh, in the same, you know, sphere as one another uh, and what that might look like in the future uh, and how much that might discourage some of these people from entering the financial system in some capacity. Yeah. I mean, I think Maybe I'll offer my perspective, which which might echo um, uh, some some portion of the crypto community, which is um, you know centralized systems really do matter, and there's there's a real benefit to to having centralization. Um, ideally, you get better security and governance and and sort of longevity. One would argue um, with decentralization, um, and so they need to find ways to cooperate. And remember, you know, of course, you know very well that Coinbase highly centralized, you know, MetaMask, highly centralized. Like a lot of the major crypto companies out there are centralized. And so they feed off of each other. And um, the decentralized movement is very important, especially when you're talking about protocols. Like if you've got an Ethereum protocol it or any protocol that you're syncing in, syncing information in the blockchain, it's a very strong argument that decentralization is more secure. And, 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 and that um, that sort of underpins the the spirit of crypto, but I think there's a real uh, recognition that um, custody is good for the lion's share of of our wealth, um, and and that we need to have other ways of of holding that wealth and and um, communicating that are not centralized, that are not uh, necessarily custodied. Okay, so let's move on. I want to talk about uh, now some news out of ClearCo. Used to be ClearBank. Um, always thought this was such an interesting company, um, run by two. Like, they were a couple. Michelle Romanow, who we've had um, speak many times, Andrew D'Souza as well, has spoken at our events. And apparently, they're no longer dating, but they are still in business together. Michelle Romanow is now CEO of ClearCo. 
and Andrew D'Souza has moved to chairman. Um, they're both very actively involved still. Um, you know, Clearco is is has become a you know I'd say a a, a pretty major player in um, you know, in fintech, valued at two billion dollars. They you know, started off with sort of a revenue-based financing model. Now they're doing all kinds of different things. It's a, you know, this is a, it's, it's an established company that is a pretty big player and uh, some changes at the top. It's tricky. It is tricky. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the article said, the, tech, the TechCrunch article said, you know, some of the investors actually had uh, – were concerned about this was not just a married couple, they were just a dating couple. And um, dating makes living, it actually a little bit less tricky. They're living uh, together. And yeah. uh, it was, but anyway, so. I mean, it's, it's, you know, when, when building any type of company that you're doing it with someone, um, you know, romantically involved or not, there, you know, there needs to be clear and, and present boundaries as to what and who is you know, has ownership and, and what stake and, um, and it, once those start to, to blur, it gets beyond just, all right, here's a company that I own 25% or, and, and that blurring of the lines is, is really, really dangerous, yeah. um, for, you know, the health and, and, and future of, of a company. Uh, and so it's, you know, clearly, uh, some tricky things to navigate through there. Yeah. And I think sometimes Bo and I spend more time with each other than we do with our wives and families uh, some weeks. We try not to make that a habit, but uh, it, is, <laughs> it is very much a, a challenge. Anyway, um, I want to talk about uh, an article that was written by our own uh, Kevin Travers, who wrote this manifesto, he called it, um, <laughs> and it really is that way, talking about really prompted by the JP Morgan opening up a branch in the metaverse. And that really sort of... Uh, hit home for him and uh he uh he basically you know, he's he's gen z they're targeting gen z and he's one of the older gen z's um and uh you know they he basically um said that the whole the whole crux of the article was that they're you know gen z are digital natives they they, they live in a metaverse type world anyway they're always on their phones interacting with screens um and they actually don't want to increase that in with a set of you know, goggles and hang out in the metaverse. They, uh, so he's not, not very bullish, shall we say about uh, JP Morgan's efforts. Yeah. I mean, he's so right on, like this is a multi-threaded rant of Kevin's and I, it was super entertaining to read the key point about JP Morgan opening a branch of the metaverse is just the classic boneheaded move that's invented in some boardroom somewhere by, by some, marketing managers, um, product developers, what have you, that are just completely clueless about their audience. Um, and uh, it's going nowhere. Well, certainly I think you know, you're right on the, the JP Morgan thing, but the metaverse is, is something that I think we all need to keep an eye on and, and, and what it really means. Uh, because I don't think any of us have any idea yet. You know, I was talking to someone the other day at breakfast, and it's like, will breakfast in the future be in the metaverse? And I'm just sitting at my table. He's sitting at his table, but we have the goggles on, and, and that's how we're having breakfast. I don't know. Uh, I hope not, obviously. But <laughs> um, but but there are all these things that are, are potentially possible. And then when you rope in financial services with it, 
um, then it becomes not only just this fun game, but then it becomes, you know, a, a significantly uh, different venture and a lot more serious in how commerce is done and, and potentially how uh, events are run. And, um, you know, there's all different possibilities. I think we're just in the infancy of not only the metaverse, but crypto and everything. And, and seeing how all of this kind of begins to shake out um, and tying it back to the first point, if we don't have the people in power that allow for these things to develop naturally versus this constant push and pull of what's allowed, what's not allowed. Can I do this? Can I not do this? You know, it puts us in a really, really tricky spot and, and potentially way behind the rest of the world that it's a, a bit more forward thinking. Yeah. The way I look at it is, you know, is it a better experience in the metaverse or is it a more convenient or is it, I mean, right now you've got like Kevin's what Kevin has said, like put some effort into your app. Don't try and don't try and uh, create a, a whole other experience in the metaverse. But uh, I think that's, that's really the, the key thing. Anyway, we're almost out of time. Just last thing I do want to close with the interesting story on CNBC today, you know, where, Recording this uh, Thursday afternoon, uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine in the last 24 hours, and that has been a uh, obviously dominating the news everywhere. And, and to talk about sanctions, of course, and a lot of those sanctions are financial. So it's going to be interesting to see the the fintech kind of um, angle here. And one thing I just wanted to highlight with the CNBC story was that you know Bitcoin donations to Ukrainian. Um, military type organizations are um have been soaring so bitcoin has been over a million dollars apparently donated to various groups and that's 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 at an exponential increase they say it's going to be much much more money than that ukraine in just in recent weeks has embraced crypto um and so there's uh that that's going to play in. So this is going to be an interesting, interesting angle about if you can't if you know the, if the banking system is suddenly shut down, what do you do? Crypto. I think that was uh, sorry. I thought you were done there, Peter. But yep. uh, what I was going to say is the the bankless episode I was listening to, uh, Congressman Emmert. You know, one thing he was talking about is like this. There's a constant chatter in Congress and stuff. It's like, what about sanctions? If if crypto's decentralized, and he's like, well, we'll figure it out. That shouldn't stop you from potentially innovating because one piece of it doesn't line up the way in which it does today. All right, we'll take Russia out of the SWIFT payment system. And now they're cut off from you know interbank payments from around the world. Well, potentially crypto could ruin that sanction, but maybe it comes up with other sanctions. So I think it, you know, a lot of this ties together. Um, and so I, I thought that was an interesting point on top of, of what you were just talking about. Last word, Bo. Uh, I'm so tempted to just dive deep into this. <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> we're yeah. actually over time. All right, yeah. sorry, we got to go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good idea. Let's leave it there. Okay, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for uh, for joining us today. Uh, reminder: Lender FinTech USA happening May 25th and 26th in person in New York City. It's going to be huge. Go to lender.com to buy your ticket if you have not done so already. And with that, thank you, Todd. Thank you, Bo. We'll be back same time next week. Have a great weekend, yeah. everybody. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Bo. Thank you.